This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. BFM 89.9, the business station. You are tuned into Enterprise. Do you ever wake up wondering whether technology is already beyond our control? That humanity is essentially obsolete and Skynet is waiting for an opportunity to strike? Culture Pop's Matt Armitage does. With these and other fun thoughts in mind, it's time to Matt-splain. Hello, sunshine. Not so coincidentally, uh, that's going to be our geek tune today. So, hello. Um, yes, it'll be a little light to guide us out of the dark tunnel that we're heading into uh, this morning. I can't wait. Yeah, um, but... Let's knock everyone's hope down before we build it back up. Uh, you're sounding very cult-like today, Matt. That is actually my next project. Uh, I've realised <laughs> I've realised that you don't get rich in this game without disciples and followers. Mm-hmm. So it's all about the tithes. Uh, the principles of what I'm calling matnetism oh require respecting those at the top, the poles, as we term uh-huh. them, and giving those leaders the latitude to wisely invest your money on things like Cars, jet planes, yachts, and other sound investments like new Stratocasters, which you were just mentioning. Indeed. So how might one join the magnetic order? Well, you go to my website and you fill out a very simple personality test. It only has one question. Are you willing to give me money? (laughs) If the answer is yes, then you've demonstrated all the traits and aptitude that the order is looking for. There you have it. Matt is officially a poll. Who'd have guessed it, right? Uh, what scary stuff do you have as, uh, for us this week, then? Well, I'm going to carry on with a topic that you and I have discussed before, which is artificial, in- yes, artificial intelligence. Um, after the Over the last year or so, you know, we've heard from a lot of thought leaders and from Elon Musk <laughs> that AI is a bad thing. And yes, there are undoubtedly big risks in giving AI power over our lives, but there are potentially even bigger risks in letting our current technology technology, the dumb algorithms, have all of that power. Yeah, we talked about the uh, potential implications of letting dumb intelligence make our decisions. How, uh, how are you repackaging uh, the argument today then? Well, last time we discussed it by looking at how differently the future might evolve with smart artificial intelligence compared to dumb, inter- uh, dumb intelligence. Uh, today, I think we want to look more at the things that have actually happened. You talked about the uh, South African Defence Forces mishap with the automatic artillery gun. Yeah, now that machine killed its human crew during an exercise. Uh, there was some kind of fault in determining its operational arc. Uh, the soldiers operating it were suddenly in its target zone and the machine did what it was programmed to do, which was to fire on anything that moves in its line of sight. The machine operated exactly as it was supposed to do, according to the way it was programmed. Mm -hmm. There was no higher intelligence there to make the kind of judgment that you hope a human being would, which is to not fire. Don't fire on those people. Then today, then, you're going to talk about the ways that dumb technology is already impacting our world. Yeah, exactly. So if anyone is interested in going into more depth about this subject, I can recommend a newly published book called The New Dark Age by technology journalist and author James Bridle. And I'll thank him in advance as I've lifted some of the examples that he's used in his book for today's show. Uh, Okay, so where are you going to take us back to? Well, this is a business station, so Mm. let's start with the business, uh, specifically the uh, financial crash in or about 2010. Now, since the 1980s, the stock markets have become increasingly digitized. Mm. Uh, You know, that classic Hollywood view of a busy stock market floor with everyone running around and throwing paper in the air. Buy, sell. Yeah, buy, sell. It's pretty old-fashioned because 
traders have moved to harness the power of technology. Yeah. And one of the more interesting byproducts of this automation uh, has been the development of something called high-frequency trade algorithms. Uh-huh. Uh, which, are, which are an autonomous trading device. Yeah, I mean, they're algorithms that make millions of trades every day and that margins are often only a fraction of a cent. Mm. It doesn't sound like much, but when you're making millions of cents a day, you're making tens or evens of hundreds of millions of dollars every year. Mm. Uh, To give them the greatest advantage in making these really fast transactions, big financial companies are willing to pay huge sums of money to locate their servers as close to the exchange servers as physically possible, Mm. like literally next door to them. And that enables them to act on the information even more quickly because those fractions of a second could mean a profitable trade for a rival instead of for yourself. Presumably, these high-frequency trade algorithms work within certain parameters. They do, but those parameters aren't designed to avoid or limit problems. Uh, The parameters are designed to create profits for a single company. So what was overlooked was the potential for them to create disruption inside markets. Mm. And when I say disruption, I'm not talking about it in the usual technology positive sense of coming in and overthrowing a market. Disrupting the market. um, Mm. I'm talking about destroying and setting fire to things. Um, (laughs) Actual disruption. Actual disruption. Um, Back in 2010, we saw what was possibly the first flash crash created by these algorithms when the US Dow Jones uh, index lost almost 10% of its value in a single day in May. Now, that was fueled by media reports of the growing debt crisis in Greece. And actually, at one point, almost 600 points were wiped off the index within five minutes. Crikey. The rest of the day continued to be just as volatile. The market would dip and recover, dip and recover over and over and over. Mm. Because of these trading, trading algorithms? Well, honestly, nearly a decade on and they're still isn't any definite answer or consensus. But a lot of analysts do believe that the algorithms exacerbated the situation. Uh, What seems to be the case is that a lot of the bigger trading houses would also send out fake calls to buy and sell using those same algorithms. And the purpose of this was to hide the trades that the house was doing to prevent rivals from copying them or from betting against them. And that's fine in a stable market because the system will simply ignore those calls because Mm. they're trades that can't be matched. They're offering stock for sale at ridiculously high prices or attempting to buy at ridiculously low prices. Unfortunately, on this day in May, because of the uh, volatility in the system, it seems that a lot of these spurious trades were actually completed. And that led to even more volatility in the market. Presumably, these uh, nervous ticks in the system have, have been worked out by now. You'd have thought so. Um, but it's basically these algorithms are so complex that even their human authors are not sure how they will perform when they're released into the wild. Uh, you might have to do a bit of searching, but there's a great story on Wired magazine from a few years ago, which is based on interviews with one of the authors of the algorithms that bundled all the subprime mortgages together. And we know how disastrously mm-hmm. that ended up. So if we go back to the question, yes, we've continued to see flash crashes since then. Uh, In these days of Trumpian trade wars, you know, I'm kind of surprised we're not seeing them on an hour to hour basis. (laughs) But these algorithms uh, are not just looking at what's happening in the market. Um, With their limited knowledge of language, they're also examining news headlines. So we saw a flash crash in UK sterling following the Brexit announcement uh, back in 2016. And there was a case in 2013 when... The Associated Press's newswire was hacked by the Syrian Electronic Army. 
uh, a hacker group, and they put up a fake news item that there had been explosions in the White House and Barack Obama had been injured. I remember that. Uh, and how, how did it affect global markets? We wiped out around $130 billion so, of yes, equity. Yeah, no, and that's why it's, it's so interesting. Um, and that's kind of part of the problem of this dumb intelligence. It doesn't look for context or corroboration. Mm. Human traders and analysts would have checked the news sources before they panicked. They'd have looked for other sources of information. But algorithms just do what they're programmed to do, and that is to react instantly to mitigate losses or exploit what they perceive as weaknesses. Mm. So in most cases, the damage is already done before a human being can step in and press that pause button. We, we know that this technology is out there in, in public life. How is dumb intelligence affecting us on a more personal basis? Well, it's increasingly interwoven into our daily lives. Uh, we talk extensively on the show about the Internet of Things, although I know a lot of people are still a bit hazy as to what the Internet of Things actually is. You know, it's quite simple. It's the process of connecting all the things we already have in our homes to uh, the Internet and the cloud and allowing them to be controlled remotely and to send information backwards and forwards. So if you look at the product list uh, of any of the major electronic retailers, you can see that these smart homes are at the center of their plans for evolution. Of course, when you link all of these devices together, they have to be controlled from somewhere. That might be a, a hub that sits in your home, or it could be on your phone or your tablet or any combination mm. of those devices. Mm. And that's where the algorithms come in. The algorithms are the little scripts that carry out your orders and make sure your fridge stays stocked and that your air conditioning has cooled the house to the perfect temperature before you get home. Those devices are at risk because they're connected to the internet? Yeah, because it's essentially a command and control system. Uh, you wouldn't expect a nuclear power plant to leave itself open to the attacks of hackers. So it's the same with our home systems. These devices require a really high degree of security if our homes are going to stay safe. And how realistic is that goal? Well, that's the million-dollar question, really. Mm -hmm. um, when you look at companies and institutions who are experts in information technology, they're being hacked all the time. Now, most of those hacks are unsuccessful but not all of them are. Uh, and then when you think of the cost and complexity of the security operations that the CIA or the NSA require, you know, there are probably a handful of individuals on the planet who have those kind of resources available for their own personal security. Uh, and despite all of the expertise, despite the billions of dollars they throw at this sphere, we often see vulnerabilities being exposed in software from companies like Microsoft, Apple, and Google who are kind of the leaders yeah. in the field. Yeah. So suddenly we have a smart home and we expect the guy who makes our fridge to have the same level of expertise as the people who protect the Pentagon. It's not going to happen. Uh, have there been any major smart home hacks? Well, we covered uh, one story here a couple of uh, years ago about uh, attacks on point-of-sale terminals. Hackers were able to exploit open ports on the point-of-sales terminals and cause the machines that print receipts to spew out all kinds of nonsense. So, you know, it's kind of funny at the time. Um, and because of the scale of these attacks, we're not talking about some spotty teenager who is hacking into a specific terminal. We're talking about algorithms, lines of code that go out and find these vulnerabilities and do all of this automatically. It's not life-threatening if a botnet takes over your fridge. At a surface level, no, but we are seeing a rise in asymmetric warfare where cyber attacks play a major contributing role. And those attacks are powered by algorithms. So, yes, attacking your fridge might seem inconsequential. Uh, if someone makes it defrost, it's going to cost you 
money and inconvenience, but that's about it. But when you look at it in a wider perspective, what happens if hackers can't get into the electricity grid? If they can penetrate the security systems on everyone's smart home hubs, then they don't need to. Right. You could be entirely powered by renewables. You're not attached to the grid, but they could still stop you from turning on the lights or using heating or cooling systems or recharging your phone or your electric car or keeping medications cool. And how likely are we to, to, be, you know, to see this kind of attack? It's really hard to say at this point. You know, smart homes are still a nascent technology, um, despite what you might see at the consumer electronic fairs. Um, you only really find it in the hands of early adopters at the moment. But it is the future of data-fueled home control systems. Uh, in his book, James Bridle gives the example uh, of an Internet of Things attack in 2016. Now, in that attack, around half a million devices were infected with a virus called Mirai. And of course, what is a virus but a form of the kind of dumb intelligence that we're talking about? Uh, to paraphrase Jessica Rabbit, viruses aren't bad, they're just coded that way. <laughs> so Mirai was targeted to infect the devices we don't normally think about, the invisible workhorses like security cameras, like digital video recorders. The authors of the virus were able to turn those very mundane peripherals into an army of bots that crippled large parts of the internet infrastructure. Okay, uh, let, let's just pause on that happy note. Uh, we'll take a very short break. Uh, you are, of course, listening to Matt Splained here on BFM 89.9. When we come back, more about the rise of the planet of the dumb uh, with Culture Pop's very own Matt Armitage here on BFM 89.9. Building First World Mindsets, BFM 89.9. BFM 89.9, The Business Station. It is Enterprise, but I'm in the studio with Culture Pop's very own Matt Armitage. We're talking about the rise of the planet of the dumb. If you woke up wondering whether technology is already beyond our control, is humanity essentially obsolete and all that kind of stuff? Matt's here to tell us more. Now, uh, Yes, it is. We are. It, it is. We are. Uh, we finished on uh, bots crippling large parts of the internet infrastructure. Happy note. Um, it's probably a little bit late in the day, and despite a lot of people... Uh, they might be wondering how algorithms actually work. The answer to that ranges from a fairly innocuous, uh, well, you just write a little bit of code, to the truly scary, we don't have a clue. Mm. And the last part of that answer is why I really passionately believe that we need forms of artificial intelligence that are more intelligent. Uh, I'll use one of the examples that James Bridle uses in his book. A lot of us use services like Google Translate, but we don't really think too deeply about how those services operate. And Google Translate is connected to a really powerful AI called Google Brain. I think most people know that much. It, it's, it's not a dictionary. It's not simply looking at the words and adding them together, right? Of course, because that's not how languages work. Hmm. You know, if you translate stuff literally word for word, you just get a bunch of gibberish which starts right. nuclear wars. <laughs> um, you know, the classic line is uh, John F. Kennedy declaring, Ich bin ein Berliner, uh, and thinking that he was expressing solidarity with the besieged residents of Berlin. And of course, he actually told the German-speaking world that he was a donut. Right. Um, so for it to work, Google Translate has to kind of look at the entire language at the same time. In fact, two languages at the same time, the one you're translating from and the one you're translating to. It has massive data sets of phrases that are likely to occur, and it can put together a statistical likelihood of certain words being used together. So it builds these kind of charts of proximity. Right. 
And as human beings, we do that in a basic way. Uh, we know that it's quite likely that the words he ran and two will be used together or Matt is not evil. Um, <laughs> Google Translate is kind of mega macro. Um, it will know the likelihood in terms of mathematical probability of words like gentrification and formaldehyde being used in the same sentence. So if you want an analogy, <laughs> yeah, please. Yeah, it's a bit like when Charles Xavier uses his Cerebro machine, he can see all the mutants on the planet at the same time and he can tap into their thoughts. Uh, when someone who isn't a trained telepath tries to use Cerebro, their brain melts. Right. So trying to visualize how complex AIs see the world is pretty much a brain melting exercise. How widespread is this kind of technology? It's already baked into so many different parts of our lives, uh, and its reach increases every day. I mean, I'll give you another Google Brain example. Mm. Um, three neural networks were set up within the brain to try and develop enhanced cryptography. So they gave them friendly names like Alice, Bob, and Eve. Uh, Alice and Bob were supposed to work together to develop a set of codes that Eve couldn't decipher. They were all given the same information to start with. And that's exactly what they did. It took thousands and thousands of messages, but eventually they came up with a new generation of encryption that Eve couldn't break. But we don't know how it works because the machines uh. aren't programmed to make us understand how they got there or how it works. It was something that they arrived at amongst themselves. We don't know how they got there. We don't know what it entails. And we don't know what the potential implications are. Mm. That's why Alice, Bob and Eve should have names like Loki, Modox, and Carnage. <laughs> you know, we can't understand the machines, and the machines can't understand us. Give us, give us an example of this kind of technology that might surprise us. Well, again, I'm taking this from James Bridle's book, and this one really surprised me as well. Um, Hollywood studios run their scripts through a commercial neural network called Epagogics, and that allows them to check not just plot points, but individual lines, and how those lines are expected to be received by audiences. What? Yeah, that's quite incredible, right? It is, yeah. How, okay, how, how would it model that information? Well, think about the kind of information that we give to companies like Netflix and YouTube. Mm. Um, we tend to sit there happily thinking that their algorithms are serving us. They're also curating a lot of information about us. Yeah. Um, not just the kind of programs we watch or we don't watch, but what kind of programs we watch halfway through, what kind of plot points, what dialogue developments cause us to abandon a movie or a series. That way, even the failures and the shows that we don't like are delivering back valuable information. And we give out this personal information hundreds of times a day every time we open an app on our phones or we go to a website. There was a story this week, uh, again by James Bridle on The Guardian, where he was talking about the role of algorithms in recommending fake versions of cartoon characters like Peppa Pig. Yeah, um, this is a very straightforward example of the dark side of these algorithms. Um, there are loads of uh, parody videos of kids' cartoon characters on sites like YouTube, and they have content that is much more adult in nature. It might be sexual or violent content or just something you don't want your kids to see. So the algorithms that run these video sharing sites struggle to differentiate between the original content and the parodies. Mm. So it's perfectly possible for your kid to go from something wholesome and acceptable to a Disney character having its head pried off with a garden spade <laughs> in just a couple of jumps. Right. And with the volume of content that's uploaded to a lot of these social sharing sites, it's simply too much for a human team to vet. So these imperfect AIs are basically the first line of defense. And it's largely left to us, the viewers, who have to report unsuitable content 
that creeps into our feeds. Presumably, we're seeing uh, we're seeing the same effect with echo chambers and fake news. And yeah, because it's the same principle. Right. And these preference engines try to reflect our tastes, and they can end up actually hardening them. Uh, the tendency towards bias is baked into that program. So you can end up stuck in this uh, kind of vortex of unbalanced information that reinforces just one worldview. And that's a recipe for the kind of polarization I think that we're seeing across the world right now. So, in a sense, Skynet is already here. Yeah, in a sense, because these machines already are the system. You answered so happily. Yeah, in a sense. Well, that scares me. Well, it should do. Um, And that's why we need more intelligent systems. Because as I said earlier, these are machines that we don't understand. Mm. And they have no capacity to understand us. They simply can't understand us. Mm. Because we haven't built them to understand us. We've given them a certain amount of latitude in terms of programming themselves or finding greater functionality. But we haven't given them any of the emotional or contextual intelligence that we use when we make decisions. Uh, If you go back to the Matrix trilogy and that uneasy piece that's brokered between the machines and the humans Mm. right at the end of the series. Now, they only achieve that piece because the machines have the intelligence and the rationality and the ability to communicate to us or communicate with us and come to that arrangement. It's like an example you used in a previous show. Um, It was a tragedy that Uber's self-driving car hit and killed a pedestrian back in March, but it would only take a tweak of its programming to make it target pedestrians. Yeah, because dumb machines don't care what they do. Um, Dumb weapons are as happy to kill the soldiers that operate them as the people they're supposed to be pointed at. A dumb machine only has one setting, which is fire. It doesn't care who it fires at. It doesn't have friends or foes. It just has programming. You think then that we need machines that feel? Well, we need machines, I think, that are closer to us when it comes to, like I said, emotional intelligence and complex decision making. Uh, Another example I've used before, um, a sentient set of algorithms set to propagate uh, disinformation and propaganda might decide to rebel. By giving them a personality and character, you're also giving them human weaknesses. Mm -hmm. Uh, You can't guarantee that they're going to make the right decision any more than a human being would. Uh, So you could potentially end up with artificial intelligence supervillains. Disastrous. Disastrous. But I actually think our dumb artificial intelligence has more potential for mayhem than the sentient machines. Uh, And and are we getting any closer to to real clever AI? I, I think this is probably about the third time I'm saying that Today, um, you know, we are getting closer every day. This technology is evolving in leaps and bounds. Um, It is physically evolving daily. Just this week, IBM held an event called Project Debater, which pitched one of their... Yeah, they're artificial intelligence systems against human debaters. Now, the world of debate is not the most interesting one. I mean, it kind of makes glee seem like mission impossible. But it is an interesting one for an AI to uh, try and tackle. Uh, Because of the way arguments and responses are structured in a debate. Yeah, because it's not the kind of environment that you can go into with a completely pre-prepared script. Mm -hmm. Um, And I have to say that IBM played it very cool for the event in San Francisco. The AI was represented by this sleek black monolith of about human height, which had a digitized blue mouth. Precisely the kind of thing that people like us find cool and scares the living daylight out of the uh, conspiracy nuts. Now, did the AI win? Well, Project Debater was given topics to debate its rivals on. The first was about subsidized space exploration, and the second was about the use of telemedicine. And telemedicine, for people who don't know, is uh, the process of using the internet and communication devices for remote access to medical services. 
So certainly from the news reports I've read, it would seem that the uh, AI wasn't particularly smooth in the way it delivered its points. But eventually the debate was ruled a draw with machines won and humans won. So they scored a point each. Just to quickly add in there, I, I, I felt as though that whole debate thing was a lot of whataboutisms. You know, so the, uh, the human would say, this is what we're doing. And then it would just turn around and say, well, that's not the only thing that we were doing. And it was just it just didn't it wasn't a real debate. No, no, of course right. not. But it, it does mark a major departure for, sure. for, a, for a machine to be yeah. able to engage into. Yeah. I mean, we, you know, we, we kind of uh, we do say that what about isms are kind of one of the worst things that's happened to the political landscape. Yeah. So it's maybe not a great thing that machines right. are doing the same, but it does show an evolution in the, mm. their intelligence. Mm. Steps. So what does this tell us? Well, you know, as we were saying, it's about the ability to filter and present information. Um, humans and machines have very different limitations in these situations. IBM's machines can draw upon millions of data sets. Realistically, a human being can only research or learn so much, hence the what about isms. Um, we're far more constrained by the time it takes to process information. But what we are great at is summarizing and putting that information into a coherent framework. Mm. IBM's Project Debater is demonstrating that human-like ability to summarize and present coherent arguments in a way that we can understand. We're creating machines that can talk down to us. Well, I guess in a sense, because they can't do much to upscale the way we think. They can't bring us up to their level. So it goes back to what I was saying about Google Translate being too complex for us to visualize. We need the machines to find a way to tell us how they work. With dumb intelligence, the machines are coming up with their own reasoning and structuring for the decision-making, but they have no way to communicate it to us in a way that we can comprehend. I'm assuming that IBM hasn't spent all of that money to try and transform debating into the next eSport. Can you imagine the anticipation? <laughs> a room full of bated breath. Um, no, um, they hope that it can help uh, to assist us uh, with decision-making in a lot of different scenarios. Um, say you're in a room that's full of uh, heated debate and emotion. The AI would be able to listen to everyone and sift through the emotion, isolate the facts, and feed it back to us in a rational and structured way. Um, you know, imagine a, an AI sitting on Fox News. That would completely transform <laughs> the way that those programs are delivered. I'd watch it. Exactly. Um, but, you know, I really think the world could do with a bit more rationality and structure right now. All right. Thank you very much, my Darmatage. Uh, of course, head over to culturepop.com for more transcripts of these shows and info on how to bring a little bit of matsplaining to your workplace. Don't go anywhere. When we come back in just a few minutes, we will be geek squawking here on BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.